0: All right, so we have been in the Gospel of Mark, and last week I thought we would get all the way through verse 28, and that didn't happen. So that's my goal again this week, that we'll get through verse 28. But last week, what we did look at, um, I'm in Daniel for some reason, we're not in Daniel, was Mark 1, 14, and 15. And so let's review that just really quickly. Mark 1, 14 and 15, we saw that Jesus was beginning his ministry in Mark's account up in Galilee. We talked a little bit about how Mark, he just jumped over Jesus' ministry down in Judea, down in the, the southern area of Israel, and he starts off his ministry up in Galilee uh, with, with this account, and in doing so, he kind of skips over 6 to 12 months of Jesus' ministry, his uh, encounter with the woman at the well um, several other miracles that took place down in Judea and we pick up the story here in in Galilee and um, these verses here Mark 1, 14 and 15 they kind of act as a, a summary statement for uh, Jesus and his ministry and all that he is doing in his ministry um, let me see here and so I'll just go ahead and read that for us. It says, Mark 1:14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, uh, he'll get to that in to chapter six. And we'll look at that more closely. It says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. <clears throat> so, first off, by way of review. Uh, How did Jesus disseminate his message according to verse 14? What was the the means, the the medium, the method that Christ used to get his message out?
1: In person, verbally.
0: Yeah, he was preaching, right? He did it in person and he was preaching the gospel of God. The same way, the same means and method that you and I are to to use today to uh, get God's gospel out into the world. Uh, He doesn't use angels to to preach the gospel. He's not writing the gospel in the sky, even though he could. Uh, He is using the preaching of his his people, not from the pulpit, but the proclamation of his word, like you said, in person. Uh, It's the same way that Jesus was spreading the message. And what was the gospel that Jesus preached? We spent a little bit of time talking about the gospel that Jesus preached. What was that? The kingdom is at hand amen the kingdom is at hand so when you and i we go out and preach the gospel we're preaching about christ right christ crucified and uh resurrected and ascended but jesus was preaching the kingdom of god and that it is at hand and along with that we discussed three different aspects of the kingdom what are the three aspects of the kingdom we spent quite a bit of time trying to to understand that it is a a pretty deep concept The kingdom of God is at hand. What's that mean? Go ahead. Um, I don't know if this is right. Okay. The Davidic
1: covenant and then the fact that Israel will live in peace and then the eternal kingdom.
0: Yes, good. So the Davidic covenant is pointing towards that that fact, towards the reality of the kingdom. And in one sense, Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is here. And you and I being um, subjects of his kingdom, we are... Recognizing him as king that the king is here and we are submitting ourselves to his authority and um, so in that sense he is spiritually reigning now in a, a very real sense he is our king right we would not deny the fact that he is king but he is going to establish a literal kingdom on this earth in the future and he will reign over every tribe and tongue and nation um, and then that kingdom will go into eternity. It will be an eternal kingdom uh, in line with Daniel 2. Maybe that's why I was in Daniel. That's not why I was in Daniel. I just opened up to Daniel. But in Daniel 2, it talks about how this stone that is not shaped with human hands is going to come down it's going to abolish every earthly kingdom. And his kingdom will be established forever and ever. And so you have the the current spiritual kingdom, the future literal kingdom, and then the eternal kingdom, which will... Uh, progress naturally out of the the future physical kingdom. Any thoughts or questions on that? Because, again, it's a a big thought. All right. And Jesus went on, of course, he was preaching the the gospel of God. And in doing so, at the end of verse 15, he says to repent and believe the gospel. He's calling them to repentance, to a, a decisive point of, of action, it's not just something that um, is a a truth that is just kind of floating out there. You need to embrace it and receive it, or reject it. There's no sitting on the fence, right? Jesus said, "You're either with me or against me," and he started off his preaching with that uh, very sentiment in mind. All right, so moving on, looking at verses 16 through 20, we'll read about Jesus gathering his first disciples. Will somebody read verses 16 through 20 for us? Who's got that? Mark 1, 16. All right, go ahead.
2: And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and
1: Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. Hmm. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him.
0: Alright. So verses sixteen through eighteen we see Simon and Andrew there. And Jesus calls out to them and tells them to to follow him. And in verse eighteen it says, Immediately that's Mark's word, right? Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Have you ever wondered why they, they did that so immediately? Um, they're, they're sitting there working, and some guy comes up to them and says, Hey, follow me. Um, I, I don't know if it was maybe a, a social status thing, if that was something that was higher than uh, fishermen, or if Jesus just had a certain amount of charisma, or uh, there was a, a desire for the truth that he had. Remember Jesus, even when he was 12 years old, he was captivating... Uh, the people inside of the synagogue um, you think maybe more money than fishing um, certainly that's not the case right um, all, all different kinds of reasons that we could speculate that these fishermen might have immediately got up and, and left and followed Jesus but I think it's good to, to realize that this isn't their first encounter with Christ um, they had an, an earlier encounter with Jesus back in John chapter 1 uh, will somebody turn back to John 1 and read that for us? It would probably be good if we all turn back to John 1, but will somebody read John 1:35 through 41? This is going to be a, an earlier encounter that these men had with Christ. Who's got that for us? All right, Greg? Again
2: the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And uh, one of those who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ.
0: All right. So, we see that uh, he was beforehand a a follower of John. He was a disciple of John. And John gave an incredible witness, an incredible testimony of Jesus. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We read later on in John, I think it's John 3.30 or 31, where um, he says, yes, John 3.30, John says, he must increase and I must decrease. And that was his attitude. That was his mentality. And so John pointed his disciples to Jesus and said go and follow him because he is a real lamb of God he's the one that you need to be following so they had this incredible witness from John uh, they had a, a great first impression of Jesus right and uh, this took place several months before this encounter that we're reading about in in Mark chapter one so it's not as if they're just um, out of the blue having this encounter of Jesus Jesus walking up to them while they're fishing they had already Established. This is a Messiah. John has declared that he's a Messiah. Uh, clearly he is. And, and they went and, and grabbed other disciples and said, you need to come follow this man. I found the Messiah. So they had already established that to, to some degree before this encounter took place. And if we look in Luke 5, we can also see uh, another account where we get some additional context. I'll go ahead and read Luke 5, starting in verse 1. And this is going to be the, the same encounter of these two, um, or of Jesus coming to the disciples and gathering his disciples. It says, starting in Luke 1, or 5-1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them, and they were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, And he asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, and Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their, net, their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So, what additional information do we find in, in those verses in Luke's account? Well,
2: there was a lot more interaction with Jesus. Yes. Other than what appears right here.
0: And divine interaction at that, right? And telling them, cast down your nets. And Peter, being Peter, kind of talks back, but then obeys, right? He says, but we've been doing this all night, and we're fishermen, and we know what we're doing, but I'll I'll listen to you because you're the Lord, right? And he brings in this huge catch of fish. Um, Obviously, that's got to have some impact on his view of Christ and his willingness to, to follow after him. What other information do we glean from these verses in Luke 5? Yes.
2: Goes into great detail and gives a lot more information. So does John, but Mark's just like,
0: yeah, he showed up on the beach. He said, follow me. Peter said, okay. Yep. Yeah. Mark's point is he's gathering his disciples, right? That's his main point. Uh, These other guys, they go into why they're they're following after him. And we also see in Mark or in Luke's account rather the relationship between these four disciples. What's their relationship? Yet they're fishermen and they're also partners, right? Um, it says in, in verse 10 that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon and Andrew as well as brother. So they're partners working together um, and they're encountered. They face this, this encounter by Christ. Again, they now have a, a sermon that Jesus was preaching, right? He went out on the boat to preach a sermon. Uh, and then he performed this amazing miracle of bringing in the fish and then we see a, a sort of repentance from Peter what is his response when all this fish comes in? he says get away from me Lord right I love how, how R.C. Sproul puts it he says surely if, if Peter were any kind of businessman and he would look at Jesus and he would say okay well you come down here every day and I'll give you 50% of, of any of the, the money that I make off of these fish right I take 50, you take 50. All you have to do is do this little magic trick once a day and, and we'll call it good. And he could employ a partner like that. But no, Peter realized that he was in the, the presence of divinity, that he was facing the creator himself. And he says, get away from me. That was his response to being in the presence of holiness. We see that all throughout the, the Old Testament. Whenever somebody sees an angel, they fall down on their feet and, or fall down on their face and they're terrified. And nowadays we have stories of people encountering angels and um, doing all kinds of weird stuff, just dancing and prancing. It's a jolly good old time. Um, that doesn't at all line up with the biblical experience that we see when people come into the presence of holiness, of, of glory. And that was uh, the response that Peter had. He was uh, seemingly somewhat repentant, said, uh, get away from me. And instead Jesus says, no, you come and follow me, and I'll make you into a fisher of men. We see in, back in, in Mark, in verse 17, where it says, where Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus is putting the onus on himself, right? He's not saying, you guys need to step it up. You guys need to work really hard, and if you train for a long time, if you study well, then you can maybe eventually make it to this point where you can fish for men he says no i will make you to become fishers of men the onus is on jesus uh, he is the one who is doing the work and of course this becomes an example for us later on in in salvation um, but it starts off right at the beginning jesus is saying i will make you to become fishers of men um, and that's again in, in verse 17 and then we see that the disciples counted the cost of following after Christ. Uh, fishing was a, a pretty big industry in that area. All around the, the region of Galilee, that whole Sea of Galilee, there were a ton of fishermen. That was the, the industry of the day. And uh, it seemed like it was not only a, a booming industry, but they had their own boats. They had their own hired hands. Um, they had families to care for. We read later on down in verse 30 that Peter had his mother-in-law staying with him at his house. Um, in Luke 4, it talks about how they went to Peter's house. Now, I don't know if that means that it was Peter's house that he owned because of this great booming industry. And his mother-in-law was staying with him. Or if maybe he was staying at his mother-in-law's house. And it was like when you're kids and you say, hey, can I go over to Fred's house to play? But um, regardless, he had... Some house, it was called his house, and he was laying all this aside to, to follow after Christ. Um, not only did he have a, a mother-in-law, but that implies that he had a, a wife and a family. Um, things that aren't easy to just jump into a, a commitment like that with people who are dependent upon you. He had to take these things into consideration, yet Mark says immediately he followed after Jesus. They left their nets and followed him. In uh, in Mark 10.28, uh, let's actually go there. This is where Peter's talking about giving up everything for, for Christ. Mark 10.28 says that Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. So he's At this point, looking back and saying, remember, we had those nets, we had those fish, and and we were doing all right, and I had that house. He says, we left everything to follow you. And this is Jesus' response in the next couple of verses. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first but there we just kind of see that Peter did in fact uh, leave everything behind in order to immediately get up and follow Christ he had counted the cost he knew what it was to uh, to be a disciple to take up his cross and follow after his Lord and he was willing and ready and eager even to do that. Any thoughts or questions on Simon Andrew and Jesus going in and calling them to himself?
2: It just seems kind of crazy to me to have you know all that thing all that stuff going to you that doesn't seem like an easy, easy decision to make and we see a lot of other people who honestly probably had a lot less to sacrifice and they weren't willing to make that sacrifice. So yeah. let's see
0: Immediately he was just
2: like it wasn't like here, let me go talk to my wife real quick, get this you know, see what she thinks about all of this. He's like, Okay. That's kind of Peter too, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he's just yeah. he's like, right, well,
0: I'll do this two days a week he just goes. Yep. Good. Yeah, a lot of that is from his personality for sure. And um, but yeah, good thoughts.
2: That's also very interesting, the band
0: And surely he would have known that, right? Growing up with Peter, knowing this—he's the the outgoing one. He's a charismatic one, the eccentric one. Um, if I introduce him to Christ, then that's going to mean less for me. But I, yeah, I think that speaks to the humility of Andrew that he was willing to. Share. I found the Messiah, meet the one who is the the Christ Messiah, the anointed one, Uh, even knowing that that would likely lessen his uh, sphere of influence within that group in the community. And Peter did, he was uh, right up there at the top, part of the the three, the three that we see here who are part of the inner circle of Christ, uh, Peter, James, and John. And Andrew's kind of on the outskirts, right? Even though he was the one who first made that connection and introduced Peter. Yeah, yep. All right, well, let's look at the next couple of verses. We see the same kind of interaction between James and John. Uh, so again, 19 says that going a little farther, he saw James, a son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called to them And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went away to follow him. So here before we even look at James and John, I want to just take a moment to talk about Jesus and how he didn't just immediately jump in and go and find himself some disciples, find himself some followers. Like is often the case today. Uh, This took place after 30 years of ministry, of preparing. Again, he was 12 years old when he was in the temple, and he was already amazing, the the teachers, the scribes, and the Pharisees. But he didn't decide to go out and gather disciples around himself then. It was 30 years later after ministry and being commissioned at his his baptism, um, and he had already started ministering, and then he went out and he gathered disciples around himself. Um, That is very unlike what a lot of people do today. Um, we read in, I think it's First um, Timothy 3, talking about how uh, an elder shouldn't be one who is new to the faith so that it doesn't go quickly to his head. But that seems to be widely ignored by different churches today. And we look for people who have all these followers, all these disciples, without first uh, ministering and being commissioned and going through these These very simple, basic steps that Jesus did himself. And we see in his going out and and calling these disciples to himself, even that is unique. It was radical. It was unheard of for rabbis to approach disciples. Uh, Typically, uh, it was the disciples who would go to the rabbis and ask, hey, can we can we follow you? Can we sit at your feet? Can we learn from you? But Jesus was breaking protocol and going and saying, hey, you're the one that I want to to follow me. And he was gathering around himself those who he had called to himself and picking from different people. Right. He was picking tax collectors and he was picking fishermen, not the typical people that you would find in a, a synagogue studying under a rabbi, preparing for some kind of ministry type experience. He was going out and he was finding these people himself. And then we see that Jesus' call here was, in fact, a command. It was not a request. He wasn't saying, hey, if you want, if you don't have anything better to do, since you didn't catch any fish, why don't you get up and uh, think about coming and following me or or going and consulting with your family and sitting down and uh, calculating out the, the pros and cons. He said, no, come and follow me. It was a command. And it was a command that all four of these Apostles, soon to be apostles, uh, they yielded to and they obeyed, and we have to realize that they didn't obey it just because they're they're pushovers, right? Not because of their passive personalities. We have to remember again who we're talking about. We're talking about Peter, um, the guy who's often said to have a, a foot-shaped mouth, right? That Peter, um, bold and willing to to speak and to say whatever's on his mind, and then. John and, and James. And who were they? What was their, their nickname that Jesus gave them in Luke 4? Sons of Thunder, right? That wasn't what their friends called them or just what their parents called them. That was a nickname that Jesus gave them because they were wild and crazy, right? Because they were calling down for fire or asking Jesus, should we call fire down on this city so that they could uh, burn and suffer? Uh, these guys who are, are bold and passionate and they said... Yeah, we'll, we'll follow you. We'll obey that command to lay down our nets and we'll immediately follow you. They weren't timid yes-men, and yet they complied to the call that Jesus placed on them. And we see this quote here from Tertullian. He says, It has been demonstrated to us in Scripture that any two dear relations, crafts, and trades are to be quite left behind for the Lord's sake. For James and John, called by the Lord, immediately left quite behind both father and ship. Matthew is roused from the toll booth. Even bearing a father was too tardy a business for faith. None of those whom the Lord chose to him said, I have no means to live. So they were well off. They had means to live. They weren't following Christ just because they needed somewhere to go. Just because they needed something to do. Remember, Peter later says... God, where else? Or Jesus, where else are we going to go? Who else are we going to follow when everybody else leaves him? And Jesus turns and says, "Are you guys going to take off too?" And he says, "Where, where else are we going to go? We're we going to go back to our nets. We're we going to go back to collecting taxes. Uh, that is not the the calling that they received. And they wanted to um, to follow Jesus, not for the personal gain that it was to them, but because of who it was that they were following. Because it was Jesus, the the incarnate godly universe that they were following. Any other thoughts on those first four verses and Jesus going out and gathering his disciples and that whole process, what all that entailed?
2: Certainly it's interesting that Jesus knew what was ahead for them, that James was going to be the first one to be killed, and oddly, John, his brother, the last one. Mm-hmm.
0: But they were, they were willing, even, even though they didn't know, and even though Jesus did know. Um, they were willing to follow him at that point. And then even later when he says, you will drink of this cup that you, you think you're able to drink of. Uh, you speak presumptuously, yeah, you, you sons of thunder. You're going to drink of that cup, and you're going to experience that suffering, what it means to suffer. Again, going back to that passage that we recently read, um, that you will receive 100 times more in this life. And persecutions, right? It's not going to be an easy trail that you're going to follow. But you will receive more if you set it aside and and follow after Christ. Amy, do you have something? Yeah, Acts 12. It was the first apostle who was killed. And he wasn't replaced. That's important to note, especially in in these weird places that we live in. Um, There's not an ongoing apostolic authority that's handed down from generation to generation. I
2: suppose just because
0: he isn't here doesn't mean he's still not the apostle. Yeah. Yeah, oftentimes people will point to, to Acts 1 and they'll say, oh, well, Judas was replaced. So he wasn't killed, but Judas killed himself, right? And then he was replaced by Matthias because they needed the the 12 to, to rule to fulfill prophecy. But when James was killed in Acts 12, there was no replacement made. They didn't... Uh, have interviews or anything. It was just that is what it is.
2: And I I know I'm reading too much into this, but to me it's very kind that you would bring back to Peter's mother-in-law. So when Peter leaves, his wife will have her mother. <laughs> she won't be alone.
0: <laughs> yeah. We. I don't know what's going on with the auto, but that's. Maybe something needs to be turned down. There it goes. It popped. Um, that's probably the these mics that we put in the choir mics. are probably acting up. Um, yeah. So in in Hebrews, well, maybe it's Second uh, Corinthians nine. I don't know where it is, uh, but Paul talks about um, him not being able to take along a, a wife. Uh, him and Peter. So there's evidence to suggest that maybe she went along with him uh, to some degree on some of his travels, but it, we don't know for sure. But
2: they're just, you know, you forget that there's this whole family
0: dynamic yeah. of everybody that they left. and
2: mm-hmm. you know, It really did um, tumble up a little bit of life for people.
0: Yeah, it wasn't just one person making one decision that's isolated but yeah it has all kinds of ripple effects for sure and uh, Jesus was aware of each and every one of those that's cool yeah we'll look at that a little bit more next week I think Um, the healing of his mother-in-law there's some interesting stuff there alright well let's go on and look at verses 21 and 22 Jesus teaching in the synagogue Mark 1 21 and 22 so that they went into Capernaum, and immediately, again, there's our, our word, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So first thing we see there, there we go, is that they went into Capernaum. Uh, there's a, a picture we put up last week, and we see again up. Towards the top, that's where, where Galilee is. And Capernaum is right there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And it was the, the largest city on all of the lake. And it functioned as a, a sort of intersection for travel. So it was pretty booming. There was travel from the from east and west. People coming from Pesida over to the, the Mediterranean Sea. And then obviously north and south, it was a, a pretty main thoroughfare, going from Jerusalem or Samaria all the way up into uh, Lebanon, Syria area. It was a, a central centralized city, and it became the, the home base for Jesus and his ministry. Even though Jesus was from Nazareth, and you see that uh, Nazareth was not too far. It's down to the southwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, he Jesus chose to set up his home base in Capernaum rather than Nazareth. Uh, As we are aware, a prophet is not without honor except for in his hometown, right? So Jesus didn't have a a very uh, welcome experience in Nazareth, but he set up home base in Capernaum. In fact, if you look down in chapter 2, verse 1, it says that when he came back to Capernaum several days afterward, uh, it was heard that he was at home. Jesus was at home in Capernaum. You can see a, a similar thing over in Mark nine thirty-three. There's a reference in chapter 3 and chapter 7 that Capernaum was his home base of operation. It was a super sinful city. Uh, with all that, that travel and traffic, it uh, tends to come with a lot of sin as well. Uh, Salt Lake kind of operates the same way, right? Being a, a thoroughfare for traffic. There's a lot of drugs that go through Salt Lake. I don't know if you were aware of that, but we have I-15 going straight through north and south and we have I-80 going east and west. And with that intersection there, uh, we have a a lot of drugs going through our our interstate highways. Um, And with that comes a lot of other seedy kind of behavior. Right. For a while. I don't know if this is still the, the same, but for a while, uh, Salt Lake was the, it was number one per capita for uh, LGBTQ um, proponents. Uh, this was maybe a decade ago, but it, it's not as surprising to me now as it once was, because, I, at least in my mind, Salt Lake isn't the Mormon capital of the world that it once was. But maybe that's just because I live here and see it a little bit more than, than others. But... Um, Where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Capernaum was a a wicked, evil city. And in Matthew 11, we see Capernaum mentioned, along with Chorazin. You also see there that Chorazin is just a little bit north of Capernaum. And Jesus said that if the miracles that he did in Capernaum and uh, in Chorazin had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. But uh, the judgment for Chorazin and uh, for Capernaum is going to be much worse because they had that. Experience that exposure to the light of christ and yet they they didn't repent and so we see that jesus ministry his teaching here is taking place in capernaum which is up in that region in galilee and where within capernaum was jesus teaching here in these verses Where so Jesus was ministering in Capernaum, but where within Capernaum does the text say that Jesus was doing this teaching? Yeah, within the synagogue, right. So he is teaching in this city in Galilee, and he's teaching in the synagogue. So I have this uh, quote here, taken from uh, Zondervan's Understand the Bible Dictionary, and it says that a synagogue is a Jewish institution for the reading and exposure or exposition, rather, of the holy scriptures. It originated, it, yeah, it originated perhaps as early as the Babylonian exile. From the 2nd century B.C. onward, the sect of the Pharisees assumed a leading role in the synagogues. The chief purpose of the synagogue was not public worship, but instructions in the holy scriptures. So it was kind of a mix between a, a school and a church. It didn't have the worship aspect of a church, um, but it had the, the religious aspect. They were studying the scriptures and that was what they were doing they were studying they were seeking to learn uh it also functioned as a, a sort of civil courthouse people would go to a synagogue and uh, they would have their their civil issues uh adjudicated there and they would come out with a some kind of a, a result from their issues It was where people went who were spiritually minded. They wanted to know the the Old Testament text. They wanted to know the Torah and uh, know what it said, know the the law and the prophets, and uh, be better equipped to uh, engage their their spiritual mind. It's where people went who wanted to learn. It became for for Christ a, a favorite place to go and to minister again, going all the way back to his childhood that's where he wanted to be he wanted to be where the people were uh, talking about God and wanting to know things of the Lord and it in the New Testament became a favorite place for, for Paul that's where he went to engage in his missionary endeavors, he went to where the people were, where people were concerned with spiritual things, who were concerned with prayer and um, it's where the, the Jews were at, right and the gospel as we read in Romans 1.16 is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile And we'll look at that a little bit more later today in our devotional time. But Paul made a... a, That was his custom to go to synagogues to speak to the Jew person, to the Gentile. So Jesus is here teaching in this place in Capernaum, a building that's designated to teaching Jewish law. Um, And then we see that his teaching stood out as uniquely authoritative. So in 22, it says that they were amazed at his teaching. He was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Remember, that's another one of our key words throughout Mark. That's something that Mark repeats over and over again, that Jesus speaks with authority. He uh, heals and ministers with authority. He is a man who is authoritative. And he was seen that way in the, the synagogue with his teaching because scribes would cite their rabbinical schools or specific rabbis as their source of authority. It's not... Unlike today, where if somebody goes to Yale or Harvard, they they let you know, right, um, that they went to to Yale or Harvard, man. Uh, how's that joke go about a, a Harvard man? Uh, that you can teach a Harvard man, but you can't teach him much, or you know, <coughs> something something to that effect. I, I forgot what it was, but uh, there are uh, there's just a an, Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) That was their authority, right? They pointed to the schools that they went to. Or if they didn't go to a rabbinical school and they were taught under a rabbi, they would say, well, this rabbi says such and such or this or, or whatever. But Jesus, he taught as one having authority. He didn't point to somebody else as his source of authority. He didn't say, I went to this rabbinical school or this rabbinical institute. But he was the the Lord of those rabbinical institutes and those rabbis who other people would cite as their authority and he um, he didn't waver on his his words alright and let's look at verses well before we look at Jesus casting out a demon any other thoughts or questions on 21-22 Jesus speaking as one having authority in Should the synagogue say he didn't have any, red
2: screens, mm-hmm.
0: any what Oh, were you expecting more? No, like, as, as you do... You oh, do you yes, do Jesus didn't have, have, any have any of those. Yes, no, no red screen, screen quotes for Jesus. That's right. And he would quote the Old Testament, but even when he was quoting the Old Testament, he was quoting men who he was inspiring, right? That men who were being inspired by the godly universe, they, they spoke, and Jesus also being the godly universe, would quote them as they were being carried along by God. So, yes, he spoke as one having authority. All right. Well, let's look at Jesus casting out this demon in verses 23 through 28. Will somebody read those verses for us? Mark 1, 23 through 28. All right. Mike? Mike?
1: Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you, you are the Holy one of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. He him.
0: Right. So, starting off in, in 23, where was this unclean spirit at? In a man. In a man. Where was the man at? In a synagogue. In a synagogue. synagogue. All right. So this man was being possessed by this unclean spirit, by this demon, right? And this man was in a synagogue in a common place. Not only a, a common place, but as we just mentioned, a common place where the uh, holy men would go to, to seek after God and the, the things of God and to be more informed in the scriptures. That's where Jesus encounters this demon. Um, again, we, we might think, well, that's, that's backwards, right? That's not allowed. That's not something that we would see of Satan. We saw back when Satan was tempting Jesus that Satan was quoting scripture. He was very familiar with scripture and he was not afraid to, to quote the words of God. Um, and here we see this this man in this place of God where he's surrounded by these people who are wanting to learn these teachings from the Lord. We have to remember that Satan masquerades around as an angel of light, that he's not uh, overtly evil and sinful, but he is going to be rubbing shoulders with uh, people who are are praising the name of God. And he's going to be taking and twisting and perverting scripture and, um, we shouldn't be surprised to see Satan quoting scripture, or surprised to see demons in a synagogue. But I think, for whatever reason, we are—or at least I am—I think our our culture kind of teaches us that that's that's not common. Do you have something? No. My apologies.
1: <laughs> All right. The guy screamed out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It almost seems something he wouldn't want to do.
0: Something that the demon wouldn't want to do?
1: He's there disguising himself as being uh, righteous or
0: something.
1: Maybe he just couldn't help himself, I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) we
0: do see that the Spirit knew Jesus. And in, in knowing Jesus, knowing who He is, surely he knew that Jesus knew who He was, yeah. that he wasn't going to be able to, to hide and uh, be camouflaged amongst the people like He was, which was anybody, but this was Jesus, and he knew that Jesus would be able to call him out, and he was asking about destruction, knowing that um, first of all, this, this isn't right. Why are, why are you here? Why are you around me? Because he recognized the uh, the innate. Uh, absurdity of that, that Jesus didn't belong in this proximity to this evil man. Um, I'm going to grab this passage in 2 Corinthians, if somebody else can make their way over to Matthew. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says in verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness with lawlessness? So this is uh, Paul teaching on being equally yoked right then he says or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Bel- Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever so um, Paul there is using Jesus um, as an example and his unfamiliarity or um, the the out of place nature of Jesus and his partnership with Jesus demonic activity as an example of how believers shouldn't have fellowship with unbelievers, intimate fellowship, close fellowship. Um, And then what do we read in Matthew 25, 41? What's that passage say?
1: Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, and the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels.
0: Alright, so Jesus is saying that the that hell is prepared for the devil and his angels and so this man possessed by a demon is seems thinking that his time of destruction is is coming that it is um, at hand and that's why jesus is there he says oh that's mark two so back in mark one uh, he says what business do we have with each other jesus of nazareth have you come to destroy us that was his concern, that he was going to be cast into hell, this place that was prepared for demons and angels. Um, it says over in Revelation 14, talking about hell, that it was a place of wrath, a place of the anger of the Lord, where there is torment and fire and brimstone, where the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and there is no rest day and night. Um, that is the description of hell, eternal conscious torment. And that's what he was thinking was was coming for him. Uh, jumping over into Revelation 16, it says that men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God. That is the, the attitude in hell to blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. And then going even a little bit farther in uh, 20, where we where we read about the millennium uh, it says um let's see then i saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed after these things he must be released for a short time and then even after the short time at the end of that chapter it says that uh, Hades was thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire if anyone's name was not written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire and so this demon is thinking okay well I thought this was going to be later but now he's asking her, are, are you coming here to destroy me now uh, and again recognizing the fact that they have no relationship with each other they have no fellowship with each other Jesus why are you even here then back in Mark 1 25 we see that Jesus rebuked him even though we saw right before that that he <coughs> asked not only are you going to come and destroy us he says I know that you are the holy one of God so he's not saying anything that's false right he's proclaiming Jesus is the holy one of God and yet Jesus shuts him up he says no we're not we're not doing that it says that Jesus rebuked him, saying, "Be quiet and come out of him." Throwing him into a convulsion, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice, and came out of him. And here we see that Jesus distinguishes between the man and the evil spirit; that there are two different beings there. Right? He's talking to the evil spirit, and he says, "You come out of him." Um, it's not some kind of weird mixture of natures, like we were talking about when we were going over the, the hypostatic union. But the evil spirit was within the man. Jesus commands him, get out of the evil spirit. And he uses um, a, a strong word here in 25 when he says, be quiet, to, to tell him to shut up pretty much. Um, it's a, a forceful saying that's used of, of muzzling or, or silencing somebody. Jesus is muzzling this demon. He's silencing this demon. Uh, we see it later on in Mark 4:39, where Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. He, he silences the wind and the waves. Uh, next week, we're going to look at um, the, the fever that Jesus casts out of uh, Peter's mother-in-law, and how he rebuked that fever. That's the same word, uh, which I just made this connection this morning. In that verse about Jesus rebuking the wind is Mark 4:39. And that verse about Jesus rebuking the fever is Luke four thirty-nine. So four thirty-nine in both of the in two of the gospels is Jesus rebuking either the fever or the, the wind and the waves. So those two verses speak once again to Jesus' authority, which is what we see here in him casting out this demon. That Jesus has authority not only to speak in the synagogue as no other scriber, no other man speaks, he speaks as one who has authority, but he's exercising this authority and casting out this demon. And it's recognized as such by those who are standing alongside. It says in 27 that they were all amazed. So that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Again, not only not citing others, uh, but he is, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So obviously this demon, listen, got out of a man. And we see that uh, he even obeyed the command of Christ Jesus commanded and the spirit obeyed him and then um, after this we see that the the crowd they did take notice right Um, they began to debate amongst themselves asking how should we understand this who is this man what do we do with this not only this teaching but this man and this outflow of his power and his authority what should be the response and they didn't stay quiet for long but people were, were talking people were amazed and the spirits were terrified right um, go back up and, and look at his question in verse 24 the demons question he says what business do we have with each other Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us so it seems as if as if he is speaking on behalf of other spirits, other demons. Um, and he was worried. He was concerned. He wasn't trying to, to embrace Jesus. He wanted as much distance between him and Jesus as he could, between the demonic realm and uh, the spirits and everything that they were up to. And Jesus, they wanted that separation. And so the, the people, while they were amazed, the demons were terrified. Jesus was there. He was teaching with authority, and it was having an effect. On uh, both a, a physical realm and a spiritual realm. People were, were taking note of who this man was and uh, questioning what it was that he was doing. Any thoughts or questions on that whole encounter of Jesus casting out a demon? It's, it's do you, pretty cool do stuff. I think
2: it was com- not common, but the demon
0: possessed
2: was in the synagogue. It, were people shocked to see that, or was that? It-
0: I have no idea really I'm just curious
2: because it seems odd like you said earlier that they would yeah. be
0: in the synagogue yeah and that was that was my point more that I'm, I'm shocked looking back on that and I think our our culture as a whole would be shocked to think well demons they don't go in churches right they're not allowed to go past the, the cross or the, the salt circle or whatever kind of weird stuff our, our culture comes up with but as far as the response there and whether or not they were surprised I can't think of a verse offhand. hand that would indicate that they were surprised by that.
2: Yeah, it seems like they don't even doubt for a second, like, oh, this isn't just some
0: some chicanery, like, he's a paid actor or something. They seem to have known this guy. It's like, oh, yeah, that's Robert. He's got a demon. Um, yeah. We just kind of ignore him when he starts speaking up a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like demons definitely have the ability to be pleasant. And I think yep. That
1: scary
2: always, but I think
0: that that obviously is part of it, but they can also be very pleasant and chill and act just Yeah, over in Mark 5 we see Legion, right? This crazy demonic dude who's out living amongst the tombs and they try to chain him up and he definitely is. He fits that bill of what we would think of as a demon-possessed man right? But this guy who's just walking around the synagogue, he probably is a lot more pleasant and not overtly demonic did you have something, Steve?
1: I find it interesting that the, the demons in hell knew who Jesus was. It was concerned about the future, like we're going to be destroyed or what. Yep. But yet the Pharisees Sanhedrin, and Sadducees didn't know who Jesus was.
0: Yep. Yeah, we'll look at that a little bit next week. For the first half of Mark, it seems like nobody really knew who Jesus was, and then Peter comes along in Mark eight and says, "Well, you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the Son of the Living God." But up until then, we'll see several instances of people who they don't know, they don't realize, but um, as we mentioned, this demon, he knew Jesus before uh, this, this time this encounter on earth, right? Um, he knew who his creator was and recognized his uh, authority over him. When the demons were exercised, do you think they
1: Freed or were they cast into a fist and held for later? Like there's some mention of that in uh,
0: First in Peter, three, maybe.
1: Because, yeah, when you look at this guy, was afraid. and You look at the uh, legion, they were the same thing. Let us go to the pigs. Yeah, what was that all about? Why, where did they think they were going? Where maybe like they knew where they
0: even if I had more than 30 seconds to answer that question, I don't know if I could. That's a, that's a deep question. Um, we do see the the passage talking about one spirit leaving somebody and then seven others coming and taking its place. But um, where uh, did that one go? Waterless places. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's a, a several week study on demonology that I'm not prepared for today. So, sorry about that. All right, next week we'll pick up in Mark 1, 29. Uh, for now, let's go fellowship, and, and we we'll worship some more. Yes, Jerry. You were right, it's
2: 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Okay. We have the right to take long a long belief the wife like the rest of the apostles and Peter.
0: Yep, good. 1 Corinthians 9, 5 talks about Peter's wife possibly going along. All right, let's pray. God, thank you again for your word. Pray that you would be with us today, that you would be glorified and everything that goes on here, that uh, the technology would work okay, that um, the, the teaching would be honoring to you, the music would be lifting up. And uh, God, we just pray that like John the Baptist, we would decrease, that you might increase. Pray this in your name. Amen.